Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very happy to have Bill Campbell, Dr. Bill Campbell, on the show. Um, I think many of you will have heard of Bill, and you may have read his work, uh, but you might not be super familiar with him. So in short, he is a physique scientist, um, exercise science professor, a director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Lab, which is probably making people sound like they're starting to salivate because that sounds like right up our listeners' street. And uh, to quote uh, from a podcast, I was listening, it was the Iron Culture podcast um, from Bill. He says, I like to help people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle, which I think is like a, a really great quote. And uh, Bill has been doing a lot of work within like diet optimization for physique sports, which is super exciting and a lot of like refeeds and diet breaks, those sort of words. A lot of the listeners will ex know exactly what we're talking about. But before we dive too much into that, um, I just wanted to ask kind of what led to your initial interest in physique sports and then into taking it to researching and developing your own lab. Because I think, like I said, a lot of the listeners will be aware of you, but not necessarily enough to kind of get a grips of to why you're so into all of this. Yeah. So my, my earliest memories of me lifting weights was when I was probably about four or five. I had a pair of two pound dumbbells. And I remember being in the basement and trying to do it a hundred times. And I may did that for a week and then I quit and I never touched them again for probably for the rest of their life. Then when I was about 10 or 11, my uncle was a weightlifter. Um, he liked bodybuilding. He never competed. So I was with him in his garage weight room. And I remember trying to lift the barbell. Uh, 45 pounds, whatever that is for, for kgs. And I couldn't do it. And I'm thinking, man, I'm just, you know, I'm horrible. And then he said, no, this is, you know, you're only 10 years old. And then I kind of let everything go to, I was in 10th grade. So that would have made me about 16 or 17 years old. And I started lifting for the purposes of basketball. Uh, cause I played basketball in high school and I played in college as well. And I, I wanted to get stronger for basketball purposes. Then while I was in college in my second year, I just became infatuated with bodybuilding. I just love bodybuilding. So that was around the time when, uh, Sean Ray, Kevin Lavroni, Dorian Yates, that was when they were really at, at probably like the top of their game. And I, I just, Everything about sports nutrition intrigued me. Ketogenic diets at that time were very interesting to me. That's when, right about the time that creatine monohydrate became very popularized, oh, wow. right around that time. So ever since then, I've, I've just, I've loved bodybuilding and I competed once. Um, I think I was about 24 years old at the time and Never competed again, but just enjoy and appreciate the lifestyle. So I, I was in a career in marketing, realized I wasn't passionate about that career. But I again, since I love bodybuilding and supplements and diets, I thought I probably should do something that I love, something that I'm gonna that's gonna fire me up to get out of bed in the morning. And now, just looking back, I'm I'm very blessed. I'm I've been at my the University of South Florida for this will be going on my 13th year. Nice. And I'm I'm at a point you can't. It was hard for me to do this early, but I'm at a point where I can do all of the research that I actually want to do. For a long time, I had to kind of try to get funding and 
there's not much funding for physique mm. enhancement. No, I, that's, I mean, I can't believe you started when you were like almost like four years old, three to four years old. That's uh, incredible. I guess in some ways we all started like with body weight training at that age, but you had some legit dumbbells. Yeah, I had two little dumbbells. <laughs> but remember, I didn't stick with it very long. No. <laughs> but, um, and it's interesting, actually, I wasn't aware that you'd competed before and um, now you're living probably all the in- more enjoyable parts of it and not the the kind of very in- weirdly enjoyable, but very um, kind of the, the less healthy side of it, of the sport. Yes, I yeah, I don't take it to that extreme. Now, I would like to look like I take it to that extreme, but I don't. And and you said what kind of what is my motto. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to myself look like a bodybuilder without actually stepping on stage. My wife is the same way. So if I can just constantly learn and test things that will help us look better or optimize our physiques. But at the same time, we have children. So we're not, it's not like we can go all in on bodybuilding or at least not, not do that and feel good about how we're raising our kids. Mm -hmm. That's where I came out with this. Well, can we do all of this within, within a maintainable lifestyle? So that's kind of my drive here. Yeah. Awesome. No, I think that's a really healthy approach to the, the, the kind of sport of bodybuilding and i think for most people probably listen to this um and for competitors that should be the majority of their life should be that kind of maintainable um kind of healthy approach obviously some aspects of the sport lead to some healthier things and some less maintainable habits and things you wouldn't want to maintain but some of the work you've been doing has made that process even potentially um, maybe more optimized not necessarily easier because i don't think it, any of it is about getting kind of lines in your glutes um, is easy um, but uh, it certainly maybe made it kind of more attainable for some people um, to adhere and kind of get to that point so that's super exciting to me because that's people i work with so i'm very thankful for the work that you're doing because it's making me a better coach and a better competitor um, and i think I'm very happy to have this platform to be able to share that work with more people because unfortunately not many people dig into the research or go into things. Um, Although you have done a very good job on your Instagram and growing that, which I think is tremendous. So more people are finding this sort of thing, which, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think many people do it who are in your sort of position. So I I always like to give credit because it's not easy um, even actually growing a, a social platform. So you've done a good job doing that. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. And, and I've learned, and I spent years asking people, how do you do this? And you're right. It's not, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, (laughs) It's something, yeah, I've made myself prioritize to, um, because I was doing a lot of this work, similar work, but before I was actually on Instagram, nobody was hearing about it. So I kind of said, all right, well, I'll start trying to publicize what we do a little bit more. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. So before yeah, we've had that kind of introduction, um, something that uh, I kind of spoke about in one of the papers that you recently released was to do refeeding. So obviously, a lot of the listeners will know refeeding is basically the common definition of increasing calories to maintenance whilst we're dieting for one to three days, typically through increasing carbohydrates up to that maintenance amount. And the goal being higher training quality, potentially mitigate metabolic adaptations and have that kind of mental break from dieting and just lead to overall better outcomes for our physiques. And you recently did, and actually the first bodybuilding kind of style refeeding study, which is really cool. And it was mixed sex as well, which I think is important to mention. 
in resistance trained dieters and i i would love you to kind of describe what you did what you found and then i'm probably going to have a load of questions to fire at you that um yeah hopefully will be interesting yeah so let me describe a little bit of the background of the study and then what we what we did in this study so i've i've really come to appreciate over the last few years a lot of the negative aspects of dieting and I kind of have the approach, the less time you can spend dieting, the better off you'll be. It's not fun. And even this, I'll just give an example this morning. I didn't eat until 10 a.m. my time or 10.30. And that's typical for me. But I was pretty grouchy and I'm sitting here doing emails. And I just noticed just an angry tone. And I, I didn't want to be angry, but I noticed I'm angry. And that's <laughs> hunger. That's dieting. So... The less time I can not be dieting or hungry, the better off I am. So I'm actually right now I'm living a diet break life or a a refeed lifestyle. So I'm dieting this week and then on Saturday I'm going to increase my calories. So I'm I'm actually living this right now. And some of the things that I've learned from the scientific literature, and again, if um, I've posted on about this in my Instagram. But we know that dieting causes a, a reduction in muscle protein synthesis. There's another study that shows there's an increase in muscle protein breakdown. We know that it's not beneficial for trying to gain muscle mass. In fact, most people lose muscle mass when dieting. We know that it can make you irritable. I, I'll, I'll speak to myself on that. We know that it, in most people, it will suppress metabolic rate, which makes future weight gain or future weight loss much more difficult and the likelihood of gaining weight much more, much more likely to happen. So we have all of these negatives and hence this idea, well, what if we take breaks from dieting? And I like to look at two different terms. Diet breaks are usually that's defined as taking a seven day or an entire week off from dieting. And then there's a little shorter version of that, which I like. I loved your definition and it's exactly how I define it. It's one to three days of breaking from your diet and usually increasing carbohydrates as you're, as you're taking this break. So our questions were, can't, will this, be helpful or will it be harmful? Because if you're gonna take a break, one of the fears is you take two days off, well now maybe on Monday, it's a lot harder to get back on the diet and maybe some people can't do that. So is this even gonna be helpful or harmful? There's the first question. Second things we were gonna ask was, does it increase fat loss? Because the in obese males, the Matador study, they showed that diet breaks actually caused an improvement in fat loss. Now it took them longer, but in the time they spent dieting, they lost more fat. So I was very excited about the possibility that we would see this. And then the other main questions were, can we build muscle or maintain more muscle? And what will happen to metabolic rate? So we were the first lab that I'm aware of that took this approach with a resistance trained population. So these are people who are relatively lean to start with. So we, we actually don't allow obese people in our studies. And not that, not that obese people don't need these strategies, but there's plenty of other researchers that, that are investigating that population. My focus is more on people who are already fit that are trying to look even better or again, optimizing their physiques. So when we started this study, we designed it for seven weeks. 
one group just dieted every day for seven weeks straight, which is how most people diet. And they reduced their calories by 25% from their maintenance calories for all seven weeks. And it, it took us, we took a two week period to determine everybody's maintenance calories. So we felt pretty good about where they were at to start. The other group, the refeed group, we said, okay, you're also gonna diet for seven weeks, but instead of dieting every single day for you know nearly 50 days, we want you to take the weekends off. So on the weekends, you're gonna increase your calories back to maintenance level, and we want you to do that all in the form of carbohydrates. But what that meant was Monday through Friday, they actually had to reduce their calories by 35%. So they had to diet harder during the week to account for the increase in calories on the weekend. So at the end of the week, each group was calorically equivalent. It was an average of 25% caloric reduction. And just talking about the practical, practicality of this approach before we look at the results, there's research that and again, I don't know if we need research to tell us this, but there is a study that says that people eat more calories on the weekends. So to me, this is a perfect study design to fit with my philosophy. If most people naturally increase their calories on the weekend, well, let's design a weight loss study around that natural habit. It makes sense to me. So we did that. And what we found after seven weeks of dieting, and by the way, we... Um, we standardized protein intake. All of my dieting studies have a relatively high protein intake. This study was 1.8 grams per kg. They had to hit that every single day. They also, what else did we do? Um, they had to resistance train in my lab four days per week. So we did two days of upper body training, two days of lower body training. And they act, they, we used a flexible dieting approach where every subject tracked their macros. So my studies are also a, a, a macro tracking experiment as well. So all of my weight loss studies, that's the, the, the format that we utilize. So at the end of the seven weeks, we've had two major outcomes. Fat loss was the same. Both groups lost equal amounts of fat. The refeed group, the ones taking a break every weekend, they were able to maintain their muscle mass significantly better than the other group. And they were able to significantly maintain their metabolic rate. So they lost about 40 calories per day on their metabolic rate, which was not a significant drop. The other group did lose a significant amount of their metabolic rate, about 80 calories. And I think I'm trying to remember what the, the KGs were. Um, it was less than a kg of muscle mass lost in the refeed group and a, closer to two, two and a half for the, for the group that just dieted straight for the seven weeks. So that, that's, that was the study. Yeah, thank you so much for, first of all, kind of outlining why you took it and, um, and just so well explaining it because I think for a lot of the listeners they are those flexible dieters, macro tracking, having a high protein diet, resistance training, probably at least four times per week. So when we're looking at studies and like, well, a lot of this research, like you said, has been maybe in obese populations. This is, this is like people listening to this podcast is directly applicable to them. And the outcome yes. was pretty favorable. And something I know um, some people 
sometimes uh, look into these things and they try and pick holes in them. And something I think would be really great for you to explain is how you actually measured fat-free mass and you tried to make sure it wasn't kind of due to a confounder, due to glycogen increases and the, the kind of water weight that's associated with that as well. Yeah, so that that's a concern. So we, we all of our body composition measures, we use ultrasound, A-mode ultrasound. And basically that gives us two compartments. It tells us how much fat they have and how much other tissues that they have. And generally we assume if you gain or lose weight in this fat-free tissue compartment, we assume that it's muscle mass. We don't assume that your liver's getting smaller or your heart's getting larger. So any changes since your resistance training and dieting, we're going to attribute that to muscle. But 70% of the volume of a muscle is water. And especially if you're increasing carbohydrate intake, for every gram of glycogen or carbs that are stored in the muscle, it draws with it about three grams of water. So if you're not careful, this kind of study can kind it can be it can skew the results in the sense that if you carb people up and that draws more water in, it'll look like they gained more muscle mass or, or, or in our case, maybe they lost more muscle mass. So what we did was we also measured total body water, intracellular and extracellular. And then we just subtracted that from this two compartment model. Because what by doing that, what we were saying is, yes, they maintain more muscle, but if what if that was water weight from the from the carb increase well we didn't want that to be part of the the you know the answer or part of the the noise of the measurement so we subtracted all of the water out of these measures and we also made sure we did our body composition measures 2 days after the car, the last carbohydrate refeed that probably didn't impact it as nearly as much as subtracting the water but I think we did everything we could do. Well, actually, if I could do this again, I would have done all of the body composition measures after um, the, the Friday. So not even having that weekend. That would be one change that, we would, that, that I would do again. But the fact that we subtracted the water out makes us feel like, okay, we, we, we did what we could do to control for that. Yeah. And secondarily to that, we did have the maintenance of metabolic rate which that's a very good indication that there was more muscle mass because metabolic rate and muscle mass are directly correlated with each other. So both stories kind of tell the same, the, the, the same outcome. They had more muscle mass at the end of this. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. Absolutely. No, I think that's, it's, I mean, I, I really like that that was in the study and you had done that and explained it because, yeah, these are the sort of things, especially as a lay person, I consider myself, I'm not a researcher, but reading through the study, it just, having had that there explained, it was like, oh, I'm really like, this is something I might miss as someone who's not a researcher. So it was really nice to have that in there. And do you have any thoughts to why you think the, the refeeding individuals were able to maintain more muscle mass and maintain metabolic rate? Were there any, like, what, what do you think is going on there? Yeah. So I have a theory, but I, I can't, essentially, I can't validate this because 
I'll explain why we didn't measure this, but there are, there are two reasons why this is likely the case. The one could have been, which is what I would have thought, if they had more carbs for two days, and then maybe they keep these carbs elevated for Monday and Tuesday, so for two more days, they're just gonna be able to train harder for, for a longer period of time each week or, and, and be more intense. But we, we did measure total lifting volume and there were no differences between the two groups. So if there was a difference with that, it didn't reach the level of statistical significance. The other reason, this is what I think happened, but I can't de demonstrate this because we didn't measure it, but insulin suppresses muscle protein breakdown. If you can increase insulin, that helps protect muscle mass. And what did we do? Well, we gave them really well, relatively higher carbohydrates for two days. We know that that likely increased, increased insulin. Now, we didn't measure insulin. That's why I'm saying this is what I think happened. But what I think happened was insulin levels were elevated for at least two days out of seven. And that, based on prior research, would inform us that that probably protected their muscle mass. And if you look at it from this perspective, dieting is catabolic. So one group was in a catabolic state for 49 straight days. The other group coming out of the diet every week, they had breaks in this catabolic cycle. Now, I don't, I'm not saying they were anabolic, but if they were truly back to maintenance calories, they were not catabolic. So that's just another global explanation as to why they may have maintained their muscle mass. One more important thing. This was only one study. If somebody else were to replicate this, maybe they don't find the same thing, or maybe we don't. So we, we, I, I wanna be optimistic, but I also, mm -hmm. as a scientist, wanna say it's only one study. No, yeah, very well said. And I think that's, that's really nice that you also said it. And I guess um, having looked through the study, and I think you talked maybe a little bit about whether or not there were people who, individuals who responded more or less to it, um, and in there's figure three within the study kind of showed that potentially quite nicely. And I don't know if, did you feel like there was people who responded more and less and, or do you feel like, I don't know, everyone would have done well off a, a refeed approach? No, clearly there's, um, a, a different response rate for, for everybody. Now, if, if they didn't follow the diet, they were, we didn't analyze their data. So the data that you see that you see there was that everybody that finished the study and that followed the diet, they call that a per protocol approach. There, there's kind of a growing, uh, growing in the scientific community to analyze the data of the people that dropped out as well. So my research coordinator now, Madeline Siedler, She's convinced me that we should be doing that, and, and we're going to start doing that. Interesting. But I didn't do it for that, for that study. Um, and I love how you, if you focus on that figure, it, it really highlights for you. Like if, if you're an online coach, some clients are just going to respond great. Others are going to be a little slower to respond. And that's, unfortunately, that's the reality. And I would just tell people, look at this research. This, is, this person lost three pounds of muscle during a seven week diet while the, this other person doing the same diet gained two pounds of muscle. That's individual variation. And it's not, it's, I mean, again, if we can show it under these controlled conditions, I think it's evidence to, to point people. Well, 
maybe I'm closer to this type of person under this dieting paradigm. Is, do you have any thoughts to who might be the type of person who would benefit more from it? Maybe, I don't know, someone who might be, I'm, I imagine maybe if you're more advanced, potentially a refeed is going to have a bigger impact on your training quality and performance or um, this talk of people who have uh, more higher responders in terms of refeeding on carbohydrates, their metabolism starts ramping up quite quickly. So maybe they might respond more. I don't know if you have any yeah, inklings into who you think might be a, a more of a, a responder versus not. I don't. Um, at least I don't have anything that I that I feel confident about. I, th I think it's all of those things. I think your training age would have a large part to do with it. Even your dieting history potentially could have something to do with it. And then, of course, just your your genetic makeup. Are you yeah. more are are you more sensitive to carbohydrates? Do you store them more in muscle fibers? And if you do, well, maybe now it does increase your intensity of training and maybe the overall volume that you're able to do. Mm -hmm. But I, there's nothing in our study that made me think, oh, this these types of people were the ones who responded better yeah. or worse, for that matter. And obviously you said it was seven weeks and even in that time we saw like pretty good um, improvements for the refeeders. Do you think if it was, I don't know, 14 weeks or like a contest prep, maybe 21 weeks in length, that it would be even more dramatic, uh, like the difference between the two? So, well, that's a good point. So one, one thing that I always um, try to encourage people to appreciate, since we're not starting with obese subjects who have a lot of fat to lose, I don't see any need, and, and we're also not trying to get these people on the stage. So the fact that they are already relatively, they are considered lean by the scientific community. Yeah. You and I would call some of these people average. Some of them are really lean, but the, you know, when, when the obesity research is the standard, anybody who's not overweight is considered lean. And so knowing that that's the population we're starting with, I don't feel like we need to diet them for 21, 20, you know, 30 weeks. Because if we did that, then of course they would look, they would get to the point where they're getting stage lean. Yeah. Um, what would happen if we continued that out? I, I have to believe that the only, they would have, I, I don't, I don't have any reason to think that the results would have been any different. Both groups would have lost more fat. One group would have lost more muscle and more of their metabolic rates. It, it just would have been that over okay. time. It just would have been just elongated, essentially. Yeah. I know in this study and generally the approach is to increase through carbohydrates up to maintenance intake. Do you think that's quite an important component of it? Do you think if someone just increased, I don't know, their fats all the way up to maintenance calories, they'd get the same benefits? Or do you think the carbohydrates play an important role? Yeah, so the the theory that that was based on, why carbs and not fats, there was one study in females, and they, they were not resistance-trained females, but they did, I believe it was a two- or three-day carbohydrate spike in their caloric intake, and that acutely increased leptin levels. So that's the the rationale for where, at least in my mind, where carbohydrates came into this equation. And it just so happens, and I mean, as the results manifested, fats aren't going to increase insulin, carbs will. And if we're trying to maintain muscle mass, carbs probably are going to be our friend 
when doing a refeed to suppress muscle protein breakdown. So those are two of the reasons why carbs and not fats. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, not that it showed in your study, but maybe the, the higher training quality could have been there as well through more glycogen storage. So um, I think, yeah, at the moment, at least it seems to make good sense. And I guess when I'm thinking as a coach taking someone to stage, refeeds are often used as like a, a peaking kind of uh, like assessment tool. So you generally don't try and maximize someone's fat storage when you're peaking, you try and maximize their glycogen storage yeah. so that then it, it just kind of nicely makes good practical sense in that way as well yes yeah and then i obviously there's we you had males and females doing this do you think uh, there's any benefit outside of the ones you talked about for females potentially i don't know if you, i don't think you measured any of those pro those kind of assessments but quite often females when they diet to stage they maybe disrupt their menstrual cycle potentially lose it do you think there's the opportunity i don't know if maybe you have future research that you might look into it where these sort of approaches can help females mitigate that yeah so obviously we didn't get them lean enough where or, nor did we track the menstrual cycle in that oh. study but that's an interest that that would be an interesting let's just call it a theory would that help preserve the menstrual cycle I, again, I'm not an extra expert in menstrual cycles, but if anything, I think it would help. Again, you're pulling them out of this relative energy deficit for at least two of the days. Now, the fact that they're dieting harder for the other five, does that offset that? That's a good question. We, My lab just finished uh, an actual diet break study in resistance trained females where they took a week off. And in this study, we did track the menstrual cycle throughout the entire intervention. So that was an eight week. So the next time we do this, I'll have a little bit more insight into that question. Awesome. I think that's, yeah, it's something that is becoming more and more uh, obvious a concern. I think, I don't know if it's a male dominated sport initially. So I think it's not been something as well explored. I mean, even the research into it at all is new. So let alone kind of the bias or not bias, the not including it at this stage. So it's really cool to hear that that's something that you're now kind of taking a look at as well. Cause yeah, obviously a big important part of health. <laughs> yes. Yep. So something else I, I wondered about, um, was you had these back to back and I know like people eat more on the weekend. So that was part of it. Do you think there was any importance to having, I don't know, potentially insulin was raised more strongly due to it being back to back or for a kind of a, a longer period of time together? Do you think you could use, or do you have any, um, ideas about potentially just having two through the week rather than back to back? Do you think that it's important to have them consecutive? So that, that's an interesting question. I don't know if you're, do you know John Gorman? Are you familiar with, with him? Yes. So he helped me design this study. And he, not that we disagreed much, but he, in his coaching practice, he does, he splits the carbohydrate refeed. So let's say Tuesday and Friday or Sunday and Wednesday. And he has very good rationale for doing that. Mm. It just so happened in the study, again, now he deals with bodybuilders who are going to do anything. Yeah. My, my subject pool, some of them were bodybuilders, but the majority were not. So again, I went to this maintainable lifestyle and that, that was the, one of the considerations for why we did the back to back. But I, I will tell you from his experience, 
he prefers to split them up okay. and he has a, you know, he's one of the most respected coaches that I know in terms of getting, you know, taking meticulous notes on people. So if we do another study on refeeds, that would be what we would do. I think we would split that up and say, Hey, they just, they cannot be back to back. So, um, two days apart. Awesome. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's where I would go with that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I know some people uh, use it as like refeeds of often they've become like an adherence tool. So then choosing when you do them is kind of like, you could almost do a reactive refeed, choose when you do your refeed. But if it needs to be back to back to have the kind of the metabolic effects and the muscle retaining effects, then that's something again would be really good to know. So the fact that, yeah, we're going to have hopefully some more research looking into that. That's yes. yeah, exciting. <laughs> But, and that's an important point. Just because we did back-to-back doesn't mean it's superior than splitting them up. At this point, we don't know. And I get another thing, I'm just thinking about practically applying them. Some people have used them as like the day of their hardest training session, say if they're training later in the day or the day before or the morning of a hard session. And I guess if training quality was something you were like, that was one of the big reasons for the positive impact. That's something again to consider, but again, I'm, there's just many ideas that are springing from you, like you said, one study and we'll want more now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, that, that, yeah, the training quality, see that, that also just makes intuitive sense to me. If, if I'm planning to do squats tomorrow or, or leg day, let's say leg press, then intuitively maybe I want more carbs in my body to get through that. Cause that yeah. tends to be a more grueling exercise. So yeah, totally. yeah that, that, that could be another approach. And something you mentioned in, well, as ever, like with these, it's a case of ideally an athlete would spend um, the minimum amount of time in a diet break that, that provides the maximum benefit. That was kind of like fat loss efficiency is kind of what we're looking at there. And I don't know if, obviously you've done some diet break studies and refeed studies and whether or not you've kind of ever thought about is there a sweet spot between days that we're refeeding versus diet breaking um, is the diet break potentially having a bigger impact maybe using those and saving up refeed days to have an extended diet break might have even more beneficial effects we might maintain more muscle i don't know if you've thought about how they could work together or whether or not one's superior to the other. And yeah, hopefully that question makes sense. I think so. So let me, let me answer. Look, first of all, we just finished our diet break study. And let me just talk about that for a minute. We have not analyzed the data yet. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Eric Trexler. He's, he's my data analyst. So he has the data now. And I think he's going to have that back to us in about a week. Cool. And I also need to thank Menno Henselmans. He and his business partner funded that study for us, the, our diet break study. So what we did with that, and again, a diet break typically is defined as taking a week off from dieting. So this was in resistance trained females, again, non-obese, non-overweight. So relatively lean to start it. One group dieted for six weeks straight, no breaks at all. The other group dieted for two weeks, then they took a one-week diet break. Then they dieted again for two weeks and then took a second diet break for a week. And then they dieted again for two weeks. So both groups dieted for six total weeks. It just took the one group eight weeks to get there because of the two diet breaks. So we 
and, and as far as I know, this is the first study ever looking at this in a resistance trained population. And it may be that the diet breaks are worse <laughs> for females. Maybe they don't lose as much fat. Now, the Matador study was one of the positive ones where they actually lost more fat because of taking these diet breaks. I'll say this, and I think this is a very important consideration when it comes to diet breaks. And, and I've learned this through reading all of the other studies. And when I say all of the other studies, you know, a handful. Not all diet break studies have shown positive outcomes. Sometimes there's, sometimes they're better, and sometimes they are no worse. They're, they're never worse that I've found. Every time that they've worked in my research of, you know, of studying the, the literature on this, it was a prescribed diet break. It was planned. And I think that's important because if somebody, let's just say, falls off the wagon or they just have a bad day and they say, oh, I'm going to count. I'm going to start a diet break now. Well, they're coming at that from a kind of a, a point of failure. Like I failed in my diet, but I'm just going to call it this. You contrast that with when it's planned or prescribed. Now they are taking a break from the diet, but they're following the plan. They, they are actually succeeding in their diet because they're doing what was prescribed for them. Now, I am not an exercise nor am I a nutritional psychologist, but that that concept is important to me so that when I talk about diet breaks, I always use the word prescribed diet breaks. I think that's very well said. It's, I think it's, I may have, sometimes I've used the term, I think a deficit break is what I've called it. So people yeah. aren't thinking it's just a free for all uh, because yeah, that can lead to uh, quite unwanted outcomes. <laughs> and I guess that's, sorry, go on. Well, no, I'm just going to, piggyback off of what you said. That's very important. In our diet refeed study, in the di our diet break study, and I'm going to say all of these, there it's never a free-for-all. We actually limit the refeeds and the breaks to the level of maintenance calories. So importantly, the person still needs to exhibit some level of control because you know I the temptation is, well, I've dieted for five days or for three weeks. I, I just, I want to go crazy now. And if you do that, I don't, you can't rely on the research studies that, you know, that have reported successful outcomes because that's not what they did. Yeah, I think, it, sorry. That's also one of the fears. If you take a break, do you, are, is it harder for you to get back onto a diet mindset? Now, the research doesn't, the research says you don't have problems getting back on. Uh, there's a study in 93 by Wing and Jeffrey. That's what they investigated. And they, they, what they reported was, no, the dieters were able to take a break and then get right back in their diets. And that was in overweight and obese people. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. Really interesting. And I guess, I don't know if you kind of talked about how your, um, the people in this study were tracking. I don't know if you had any prescriptions for the refeeds, because I guess sometimes people are tempted to then use that as a whilst they're trying to fit it within their macros they take it as a bit of a like if it fits your macros day and they get rid of all their good diet foods and that can lead to multiple 
days and potentially like going off the rails. I don't know if you have any insights into that, if you any of that you saw happening. Well, the one thing is we, we, we did not track individual food intake. So I have no idea what foods they were getting. The only thing we supply them is post-workout protein to kind of standardize that. But other than that, all we have are macros. Now I can tell you, we, we hammer and really educate our subjects. Just be honest. If you have a horrible day or a horrible week, you, you're, first of all, we're going to find out because we're going to test you again. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to, you know, lie your way through this. And the, we don't tell them this, but we exclude them. If they don't follow the diet, we just don't analyze their data. But to your, to your question specifically, we don't know what foods they ate, but assuming that they gave us honest macro sheets, we do know what that they didn't just go crazy or go way above their 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 maintenance calorie levels cool yeah i guess that's uh more of something i've seen within people i've maybe coached who within diet breaks or in refeeds if it hasn't been explicitly and it's something i've learned as a coach to be explicit about this don't go fill that day with highly palatable foods because they're they're very easy ones to overconsume and I've found um, then getting back to the diet is very difficult, even if they were able to fit that within those couple of days, because now their kind of stomach hasn't been full as it normally has been. And so then getting back to the diet is just like, oh, I don't want to eat my my chicken salad anymore. I want this, like whatever it might be that they'd been eating during the refeeds. So I think, like you said, to qualify it, that it's controlled, but also, yeah, from my experience, practically, like it needs to also be not a complete change. You're still kind of in the diet, right? You're not kind of, the diet isn't over. It's just kind of maintained, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the perception is at least my perception when I go on a, a refeed or a break, oh good, I can take a break from the diet. It's really, you're, again, you're not overeating. And the reality is if you're three or four weeks into your diet and now you take a break, and you go back to maintenance calories, that, that's probably actually a little bit of a caloric surplus because you know, your body weight is now down, your metabolic rates probably slowed down a little bit. So we're calling it maintenance. But the longer you're into this process, the reality is it's probably a slight surplus of calories at that point in time. And that's a good, that's a question actually I had um, to ask earlier, because you um, talked about how two weeks before the study, you kind of got put people to monitor their intake and monitor their body weight to have an assessment of what their kind of maintenance calories were. What, do you think practically applying refeeds, you would need to change the refeed amount to kind of make up for the fact that people are getting lighter and their total, kind of the actual real maintenance is shifting? Would you, would you change it over time? I, Yeah. So our study was only seven weeks. I, I don't know how you couldn't adjust that over time, especially if they're, you know, if they've lost eight kgs over, you know, 16 weeks. Uh, now we didn't do that. So we know that if you just keep it based on maintenance levels, pre-diet maintenance levels for at least seven weeks, you're still going to have some positive outcomes. But yeah, I, just intuitively, I think there, there should be some adjustment. And now, of course, somebody's going to ask, well, what should that be? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's, yeah, it's 
you'd lose probably that fat loss efficiency that you talked about. Like we're trying to spend as little time dieting. If we're getting into a surplus on those days, that's probably taking away from the overall goal. And it's whether or not a surplus is providing us any metabolic or training benefit above just taking ourselves to maintenance, which I guess we actually don't know that, but I'd assume it wouldn't be huge. I'll tell you who, who would know that are people like you, the the coaches are who are in the trenches working with, client after client after client that that's that's who probably has a better in a better opinion on how how to adjust over time yeah, so how would you we, answer that? What would you <laughs> i would i adjust it um and it's more based off how much weight have they been losing over the last maybe month or kind of six weeks and kind of having some rough assessment of is that maybe they've lost a pound on average every week for the last month. Maybe that means they're in a 500 calorie deficit or so across the week and then basing that. But again, there's other variables you have to consider, like how stressed they are, uh, like what water retention could be going on potentially from training stress, lifestyle stress or other variables. But certainly I do adjust it because I know for myself, even practically, um, I am one of those people who's Unfortunately, I ramp down as I diet. I adapt very quickly to it. So I have to keep dropping it. So if I was refeeding on my off-season maintenance, it would be a big surplus once I'm in a deficit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that probably would cut back. Something I do want to bring up because I think some people might listen to that initial quote that you talked about uh, in terms of making kind of this approach more maintainable and the hardcore bodybuilders that will be listening to this and kind of myself included will be thinking, well, I don't want it to be like a maintainable thing. I want it this, I just want to get the best optimized results. But as the study has shown, it's not only made be made it more maintainable, it's potentially also showing that it's more optimal than dieting straight hardcore throughout. Yeah, so I, I look at our refeed study what if there were no differences? I still look at that as a benefit because again, okay, we didn't lose any more fat. You didn't maintain, you didn't, you didn't maintain more muscle or metabolic rate, but you were able to eat more calories when you would naturally do them. So I personally, I would say that's a win for a lifestyle approach. Now, my approach is I, again, I, I don't, I study bodybuilders. I absolutely love the bodybuilders. They are the experts in fat loss. They are the experts in everything that I'm trying to learn. So I want to learn what is the best, usually through bodybuilders. And then, okay, so what are the most important things that they're doing? And if we have to turn the notch down one or two levels so that Molly mom can, can live her life while raising her two-year-old daughter and still look good while, you know, trying to work out, then I think that's the best approach for her. I don't, I don't want to say that, oh, we're going to scale all this down for you. This is the idea. This is what we know is the best. Here's where you're at. What are you, what do you think you can honestly do? And if they say I can do it all, well, as soon as we start coaching them, we're going to see yes or no. But it's really start with the ideal. This is where they're at. How close can we get them to that where they can see themselves living this lifestyle into the future? Excellent. Yeah, I know that's um, 
obviously you talked about flexible dieting and that's a big component of that approach is to make it more sustainable and whilst on paper people think oh it's more sustainable that's easier it's like it's just as optimal if not more because it allows you to actually adhere to things uh, you don't get any bonus points for making things harder for the sake of making it harder so uh, right i just thought it's good to reflect on that and we actually have a flexible dieting study that's going to be uh, well we submitted it once it had major revisions so i'm gonna i don't i didn't feel like making those revisions i disagreed with some of them so we're going to re resubmit that but that study will likely be published this year cool. and that was a study that lauren conlin designed when she was a, a, a graduate student in my program so she'll be talking about that a lot I'll, I'll be talking about it as well so we actually have again i think it's the first study that's investigated flexible dieting in a resistance trained population and that study also had males and females amazing can you give any clues into what happened in that yeah i can only because we've already presented the data at the okay. international society of sports nutrition and just so you just so your audience knows if the data is not in a journal or you haven't presented it at a conference you're not allowed to talk about the results i don't know why it's just one of those rules if you talk about out study results before it's been presented at a conference they the journals will refuse to publish it so again i don't know why but so we actually presented this data probably about two or three years ago so i'm just very slow in some of my uh, workflow and we just now got to the point where we're submitting it uh, but essentially what we did for that study that i think that that was a yeah that was a 10 week diet study we reduced the calories on average by about 20% protein was set at 1.8 grams per kg and we had two groups one group we had a registered dietitian give them a diet with typical healthy dieting foods um, essentially you could call it clean eating so it said, and there were a few exchanges on there. So it had like chicken breast, it had uh, salmon, low fat beef. So it had a couple things, but not many. It had like broccoli, kale, cauliflower. So a couple exchanges, but that was the, the, we'll call it the clean eating group. And then the flexible dieting group was exactly how you and I practice it. It was, we don't care what you eat we're not going to give you any menu to eat from you choose your foods and you hit these macros so they did that for 10 weeks and then lauren's idea was she was really curious what happens after those 10 weeks of dieting so we also followed them 10 weeks after the diet and we told them do whatever you want to do just don't you can even diet if you want but just you can you don't have to follow what you've been doing for the last 10 weeks so what we found in this study was there were no differences between the clean eating group and the flexible dieting group during the weight loss period the 10-week diet phase lost fat they maintained their muscle mass well and the only difference after the diet the 10 weeks after the diet the flexible dieting group was able to increase muscle mass significantly greater than the other group. Now, a couple things. I don't know why that happened. We had a couple theories and I can talk about them. 
The other important thing is I did not have the capability at that time. I didn't have a machine to measure water. So it could be that some of that was more water retention. Although after 10 weeks, there was nothing that should have made them retain more water. But unlike my studies now where we can control for that, we did not and could not do it at that time. The, the best possible theory that we were able to hypothesize was the research that says when you're more stressed, when you have more anxiety, you do not respond as well to resistance training. So your strength levels are suppressed. You might not gain as much muscle. So the only thing that we were able to do, because we, we could eliminate the fact that one group was doing more training. They both did equal amounts of training during these 10 weeks of the post diet. They did equal amounts of cardio. Their caloric intake was the same, no statistical, no differences there. So the only thing that we could think of in trying to explain why flexible dying may have been better after the diet ended was they weren't as stressed during the diet since they could choose foods. They didn't have to stick to this rigid plan. So again, that might not be the answer because we didn't measure stress levels, but that's, that was our best hypothesis. Yeah, yeah it's really interesting. I, I like it. And I guess at least even if we don't know exactly what happened there, we know you can follow a very strict kind of quote unquote clean diet or a flexible one and get the same result. Again, that's, like you said, that's a win because the flexible one is going to be probably way more enjoyable for the majority of the population. Yes, that is the main outcome come of that study you can i like if somebody says i want a meal plan okay great it's no better and it's no worse than not having a meal plan as you know as long as you're adherent to whatever the diet is fantastic bill i want to say a massive thank you for you being on the show uh, before we go i do want to ask actually do you have any future kind of uh, research in the pipeline that you can kind of t uh, tickle us with and uh, excite us with that potentially we'll see in the future yeah, so my um, current research coordinator now, her name's Gianna Mastrofini. She has been kind of leading uh, our next study. And what we're going to do is for the first time in a long time, we're going to look at non-resistance trained females. And we're looking at, this would be really applicable for you as a coach. If you're working with general pop clients, rather than taking them all the way to tracking their macros, what if we said, the only thing we want you to do is to just increase your protein. Just start there. So let, we'll teach you what protein is. And all we want you to do is to double your portion sizes of protein. So you're going to take what you normally eat. So let's say, let's say um, Joanne normally has three eggs and a chicken breast twice a week. So we're going to ask her, could you possibly, instead of eating just two eggs, could you eat four eggs? Instead of one chicken breast, could you eat two? So again, trying to make a very simple dietary change that's short of tracking your macros. And does that have, and again, this isn't a dieting situation. This is just what happens when you increase protein from baseline levels. And then we're gonna have another group where they actually are given a macro sheet and we want them to hit a gram per pound or something really high. So does that level of tracking is that better than just increasing protein? Or in this population, are none of them better? Because we're gonna have a control group who doesn't change anything okay. other than resistance training. So I'm 
really excited about this because I, we, we didn't talk about this today, but I have prior research in resistance trained females that higher protein is clearly better than lower protein. Yeah. Now I want to ask, well, what about all of these people that are your inquiry people when they say, Hey, I think I might want to get coaching by you. Maybe you would consider, and maybe you already do, but Hey, we, let's just start with something simple that you can implement in your lifestyle. Have some yeah. more eggs have some more chicken, have another scoop of protein powder. So that's that's what we're focused on for the fall. Yeah, I think that's really nice. Um, for, for us, maybe uh, not super applicable, mostly because we work with people who are already at that level of like, yes. they couldn't possibly go back. That would be like a step backwards for them, um, even if it maybe would work very well. Um, but I definitely think a lot of personal trainers listen to this. That'd be a super simple thing that they can instruct their clients to do if it was to have very positive outcomes. So that sounds really exciting. Um, yeah, again, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. Massive thank you. And again, thank you for your research. And I'm excited to see that come out and then future refeeding protocols coming out. If people want to learn more about your kind of research, find your Instagram, for example, where should they head? So my Instagram username is at Bill Campbell, PhD. And that happens to be the only social media that I do. So everything I do is on is, is right there. Your eggs are all in one basket. But I guess most people are on Instagram now. And I will, again, I'll plug it again. It, it's a great Instagram. Um, you put out these nice questions where you have multiple choice and it makes people think. And I think that it's great content for Instagram. I think it's quite unique. And obviously it's evidence-based because, I mean, all you have the references right there each time. So I, I think it's... Our audience in particular at Revive Stronger will love that sort of stuff. They'll lap it up. So I definitely would give uh, Bill a follow. Thank you very much. So yeah, thank you again. Thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that.
I'll see you inside.